We're going to be continuing our series called, uh, that we're called Psalms for Supernatural Living. And, and tonight I, I want to be looking, we're going to be looking at Psalms 110, you know, and, and actually a number of other Psalms as well. But o- over the last few years, I've really been uh, fascinated with the life of David. Um, and if, when, you, when you study that, uh, you begin to see some things. And in, in studying the life of David, I, I've begun to see that, that the book of Psalms is actually... Uh, one of the most supernatural books in, in all of the Bible because in them we see David not only as the warrior king and not only as an anointed po- poet and not only as a brilliant writer, but we see him as an anointed revelator, as a prophet of God. And, and we see some of the most majestic New Testament truths that are eminently applicable to every circumstance of, of our lives. And so tonight, as I said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 110, but at the same time, we're going to be considering uh, uh, the group of Psalms that are, that are known as the Messianic Psalms. Now, what is, an, what is a Messianic Psalm? A Messianic Psalm is a Psalm that is prophetic in nature and points to the coming Messiah, Jesus. So I want, I want to read Psalm 110, and then we'll talk about some of the group of Messianic Psalms, and then we'll, we'll zero in. On Psalm 110 says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send your mighty scepter out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will follow you in the day of your battle on the holy mountains at dawn of the morning. The dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord is sworn and will not change. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall strike down kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill them with dead bodies. He shall scatter the heads over, all over the land. He shall drink of the, of the brook of the path. Then he shall lift up the head. You know, when reading anything uh, written by somebody else, one must always be careful not to superimpose on that something which the writer did not intend. Uh, You know, in the course of my studies, I have taken different classes uh, on English literature and and I I have become convinced over the years that that there are many English literature professors out there who read symbolism into poetry that's not there. They, they, They make up vast convoluted pictures that the poet never really intended. I heard uh, Dr. Mark Rutland tell a story about a time when he and his brother uh, quote, found a lost volume of poetry that they wrote themselves to which they signed the name of a long forgotten English poet, forgotten by everyone because it was made up. Um, anyway, they typed up some of this, these poems and brought them to their English literature class. And, and one day for discussion, everybody was supposed to bring uh, some poetry into the class and they were going to discuss the symbolism behind the poetry. So they, they brought their poetry that they had made up by Theodore F. Blankenship. And they, they just absolutely, they filled their poetry with just absolutely idiotic poetry. It was, the, it was the dumbest thing that they could think of. And the teacher was absolutely thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. Oh, the symbolism that she found in, in those poems. And, and Dr. Rutland was actually very deeply touched that she found such depth in those poems, but it actually convinced him and convinces me as well that, the, that the, sometimes these professors see symbolism where there is none. So understanding our natural tendency to read into literature things that are not really there, I'm always nervous about imposing on David's psalms things which David never intended. Uh, and even more frightening, things which God never intended. But when it comes to the matter of the Messianic Psalms, we, we've got to resist the, the impulse to see that every one of the Psalms refer to Jesus. Some, some Psalms refer to David, some refer corporately to Israel, some refer to a particular problem or issue uh, that was relevant in, David's, uh, relevant in David's life at that moment and for example, we know Psalm 51, we know this, the, the setting, what was happening in his life. Some are just broad ideas, some uh, m- massive concepts, but they're not necessarily having to do with, with the Messiah. However, I do believe 
that there are there's a, a good portion of the Psalms that are that are directly and obviously relevant to the issue of Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. So let, let me give you some of these that I think are, are messianic psalms, that is, having to do with the Messiah, Jesus. Now, now before I list them, let me just uh, give you some tests to determine if a psalm is messianic. One of the tests to determine whether a psalm is appropriately a messianic psalm is this. Is there any place in the New Testament where it refers to or quotes that psalm in reference to Jesus? If that's the case, then we know. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt because the Bible specifically tells us in that situation. Secondly, does it line up with other verses of Scripture that, that may not be an exact quote from the Psalms, uh, but, they, but they tend to lend credence to the fact that the Psalm has to do with Jesus? Or are there other verses of Scripture? And the third test is this. Does it appear that in the context there can be no relevance to David's life or there's no clear situation or circumstance uh, uh, that, that you can find in his, in his contemporary history. Um, and, and if that's the case, then it may very well be a messianic psalm. Now, now let me just give you a few of these. I, I believe these are messianic psalms. Psalm 2, 8, 16, 21, 22, 23, 24, uh, 40, 41, 68, 69, 72, 89, 102, 118, and then tonight's great psalm, Psalm 110. And we can kind of group some of these psalms together in different ways. For example, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 have to do with the suffering of Jesus. If you will, just, just turn to Psalm 22 and you can, you can see it right away. Because Psalm 22 starts with Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It starts with the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so now let me ask you this. Where was that psalm quoted? Somebody tell me, where was that psalm quoted? Jesus quoted that psalm on the cross. And so what was taking place there? It was, it was no accident that he said that when, it was on, when he was on the cross. That was Jesus taking upon himself the authority of verifying Psalm 22 with some of the last words of his life. It's his way of pointing back to Psalm 22 and saying this is talking about this moment. This is how it had to be. And so now I'm not going to teach on Psalm 22 in detail this evening, but you know it is actually it's one of the most graphic portraits of of crucifixion known to man. You can see when you read Psalm 22 a picture of of a man on a cross. Now the astonishing thing about that is that when David finished this psalm, it's almost certain that David looked at it and he had no idea what it was describing because crucifixion was invented by the Romans hundreds of years after David's death. David almost certainly never saw a man crucified. You know, my, my strong suspicion is that he was seeing a, a dreadful, horrifying, terrible revelation which poured out of him in such agony of soul that when he finished writing Psalm 22, his tears stained the parchment upon which he was writing, yet he had no idea what it was all about. I don't believe he had a clear witness about what he was even writing about. Now, I don't, I don't believe that anybody, maybe I'm just cynical, but I don't believe anybody could be so deep in the spirit that, that, that he would be able to say this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth who will be born at such and such a, of a time in such and such a place who will be crucified on a lonely hill outside of Jerusalem. And this is what he's going to look like. I, I don't think that at all. I, I think instead he, he moved in, in, in kind of a shadow of prophetic revelation where he could see it, but he couldn't see it. He, he could understand it. But he couldn't understand it. He was receiving it and he was articulating it. But it was flowing up out of him from somewhere deep inside of him at a level that not even David could fully and completely understand. I'm not sure. I'm quite sure David never really fully understood Psalm 22. So let's move on to Psalm 69. Again, I think that Psalm 69 is a, is a clear foreshadowing of the suffering and rejection of Christ. I think the verses 
14 through 20 may very well uh, describe the horrible process of brokenness in prayer through which Jesus struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, you remember that. He, he prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but, but your will be done. That moment, I, I believe that this is a psalm of humil- humiliation and rejection. Uh, look at verses 22 through 28. May their table become a snare before them and may security become a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they do not see and make their sides shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your wrathful anger overtake them. May their habitation be desolate and may no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add punishment to their iniquity and, and do not let them come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written along with the righteous. Now, and I believe that, that, that those, words, those verses, those words comprise one of the most difficult passages in, in, in the whole Bible, in the Old or New Testament. But I will say this to you. I believe that David was reaching far, far beyond in prophetic utterance to, into the issues of the rejection of the Messiah, into the, the issues of those that were surrounding him, especially those who were of Israeli descent, the Jews who were who were rejecting him in that moment. And I think he was dealing with issues here that are, that are not dealt with again meaningfully until the book of, of Romans. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's just very challenging when you read this. Now, now then, Psalm 2, Psalm 21, uh, 45, and 72, the, these are all psalms that reveal the kingship of the Messiah. So, so turn to Psalm 2. Now, this is one of the more familiar psalms in the Bible. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, I want to stop there because I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2 because I want you to begin to see how the New Testament verifies many of these psalms as messianic. messianic. Okay, so turn to Acts chapter 4, and here you will see the verification of this verse as a messianic psalm. So let's beginning, uh, begin reading in verse 23. Let me set the stage for you a little bit. The setting here is that Peter and John ha- have been arrested. The, the Sanhedrin has forbidden them to preach in the name of Jesus. They've now been beaten. They've re- been released, and they go back into the, uh, the company of the disciples. And that's where we're going to pick it up, reading uh, in verse 23. On being released, they went to their own people and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they lift their voice, lifted their voices in unity to God and prayed, Lord, you are God who has made the heaven and the earth and, and the, the sea and everything in them. And who by the mouth, mouth of your servant David said, now, now catch this, we just read this. Why did the nations rage and the people devise vain things? The kings of the earth came and the rulers were assembled together against the Lord and against his Christ. So, so here they are, they're, 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 they're gathered together just a few brief days after the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Christ of Nazareth. And here in this moment of persecution, their minds turn to Psalm chapter 2. Therefore, they clearly saw Psalm 2 as being of messianic implications. But, but here's the question that we, that we have to ask ourselves. Was the contemporary view of this psalm, you know, at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, at the, at the time of the beginnings of the church, was the contemporary view of this psalm already that, uh, that it had to do with the rejection of the Messiah? Uh, was that what they already what they already thought? They're, because if it was, then these dis- disciples, when the Messiah was rejected, they began to see the events through which they were living, and and then in the light of the contemporary understanding of Scripture, their minds naturally turned to Psalm two, or and I think this is more likely, was it that there was not a clear contemporary view that Psalm two was foreshadowing the rejection in the, uh, of the Messiah. But that these people, uh, they are people who have, been, who have fed their minds and their spirits in the Psalms for years. And now they begin to understand Psalm 2 as having to, to do with the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. 
they, they had fed on these psalms for their, their entire life. They, they didn't understand them all. They, they may not see them all as messianic in implication. However, when they go through these events and they, they turn to God and say, what do these things mean? When they ask that question, what surfaces? Well, it's the word of God that surfaces in them. And so God, the Holy Spirit, bringing forth the word of God out of them in light of the events in which they are living, now they see Psalm 2 as obviously having to do with the resurrection and the plot to murder their Messiah, Jesus. Now, now what does this mean? What does this mean to you? What does this mean to me? Now, it means this. Now listen, this is, this is really important for us all to get this. It means that when we are living through events in our lives that we cannot understand, If we turn to God in faith and look to his word, he can bring to us those verses of scripture that we never thought to apply that particular verse in that particular situation and then he can make them come alive for us in a very real way. It's a very powerful truth. The word of God comes alive in us when it is breathed on by the Holy Spirit in my circumstances. We've all experienced those moments, haven't we? Many of us have at least. Those those moments where suddenly a a passage of Scripture comes alive because of the circumstances that you're in. The Holy Spirit breathes life into that and you you see it in a brand new way. You know, in Psalm 16, there we see the resurrection of Jesus. In Psalm 16, David writes this. He said, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. My welfare has no existence outside of you. For the holy ones who are in the land, they are the majestic ones, and them is all my delight. Those who chase after other gods, their sorrows will be multiplied. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor lift, up, uh, lift their names on my lips. The Lord is, my por- is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, an inheritance is beautiful for me. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My affections also instruct me in the right season, in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh, flesh also will rest in security for you will not leave my soul in Sheol nor will you suffer your godly one to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence as fullness of joy at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You remember this? Very, very famous passage of scripture. I want you to pay attention to the, to the end of this psalm, start, starting in verse 8. I want to read it again. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will but be, not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in security for you will not leave my soul in Sheol or or the grave. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you suffer your godly one to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence as fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Now, is that really about the Messiah? Is that really speaking about Jesus? Well, let's turn... Back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And now here, fresh from the experience of Pentecost, not having time to reflect, not having time to deal with all these issues, not having time to try to, to, to sort through page after page after page of manuscripts and try to make application of the different Psalms, but, but fresh from, from the flames of Pentecost, in, in, the, in, in the moment that he stands to preach his first message, after receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in the heat of the moment, without preparation, he had no manuscript before him. He, he's not preaching three points in a poem here. He is flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, For David says, so, and he's referring to Psalm 16. He says, for David says concerning him. Who? It's Jesus. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy with your presence. And that's where the reference and the quotation from Psalm 16 ends. Okay, so now, how does Peter, how does he see this as relating directly to Jesus? What did, he, what did it have to do specifically with what was happening in the life of Jesus the Messiah? We'll, we'll read on and we'll see how Peter makes this application. Verse 29. Brothers, I, I may speak confidently to you concerning the patriarch David. Okay, so now he's going to expound on the words of David that, that, uh, that David wrote in Psalm 16. Brothers, I I may speak confidently to you concerning the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's trying to make the point. He's saying this cannot possibly refer to David. This has to do with, 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 with someone besides David. Verse 30. But being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that, that of his seed according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ and sit on his throne. He foresaw this and spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. God raised up this Jesus of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, Peter is quoting Psalm 16 as proof that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was raised from the dead and was verified as the Son of God and would therefore come again as king. And this is the thing that, that pricked the heart and the conscience of those who are listening to Peter's sermon on, on the day of Pentecost. You understand what he's saying? He's saying to them, this same Jesus whom you rejected, whom you, uh, uh, against whom you plotted, uh, whom you killed, whom you buried, this same Jesus God has raised up from the dead according to what? According to Psalm 16, according to the prophecy of David. He's appealing now to the very heart of, of Hebrew culture and scripture and history as proof that the very one that they, whom they rejected and crucified and buried has been raised up by God. And that's proof to us that Psalm 16 was clearly a, a, a reve, revelation prophecy through David because it did not have to do with David. It had to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Now turn to Psalm 8. Again, a very, very popular passage of Scripture and one that is frequently memorized. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture, but, but I, I fear that it's one that is sometimes uh, misunderstood. Look at it, and uh, I want to show you something. Psalm uh, chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have established, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you attend to him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, if you'll just hold that place, uh, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. And now, now let me ask you this, before, before we get into that passage of Scripture, uh, I want you to, to, to answer this if you can. Now, most references to the Messianic Psalms in the New Testament are found in the book of Acts. Uh, and, and that's where one speaker or, or another makes reference to them as proof of the Messiahship of Jesus. So let me ask you this, which other book of the New Testament do you think would be the most likely to quote the Psalms to make the same point. Any ideas? Any guesses? Hebrews. Hebrews, because uh, Hebrews has the second most quotations of Psalms about the Messianic ministry of Jesus, and that's because it was written to converted Jewish Christians who were being tested. They were going through persecution. And, and because of this persecution, they were, they were considering turning back to the old ways of Judaism and turning their back on Jesus. Uh, and, and, and so this is, it was written to them. So the, listen, the, whole, the entire book of Hebrews 
is impossible to understand without one word. And there's one word that explains the entire book of Hebrews. If you teach it or study it or, or learn it without this word, you cannot get it. And the, the word that unlocks the book of Hebrews is better. Better. B-E-T-T-E-R. Better. Jesus was better than the angels. Jesus was better than Moses. We have a better covenant. We have a better altar. We have a better tabernacle. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better priesthood. The entire book of Hebrews is built on the word better. And, you know, and people, if, if you study or teach the book of Hebrews, you, will, you, you, you can miss the whole thing if you don't know where to start. But, but look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. This I have to say this, the opening verse of this passage gives me great hope personally, and I think it will to, for you as well, because notice what it says. It says, but someone in a certain place testified it. <laughs> I love that. It's great, isn't it? Because here's the writer of Hebrews, uh, and, and he's saying, listen, I know, I know it's in there somewhere, but, he, but I can't think of where it is. There's a writer somewhere that wrote this. Anybody else been there? You ever had that, that moment in your life where you're, I know it's in the Bible, but I can't remember where. Somebody in the Bible said this, but he's referring specifically to Psalm 8. But someone in a certain place testified saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower uh, then the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in, in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things under him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. Yet now we do not see all things subject, subject to him, but we see Jesus. Now, now look at it. Look at this very next sentence. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels to suffer death crowned with glory and honor so that he, by the grace of God, should experience death for everyone. You know, I know of a preacher who, who gave a long, complicated teaching on Psalm 8, and he went, to, he went to great lengths to prove that where it says that he, he has made man a little lower than the angels, that it didn't really mean that. He went to great lengths to prove uh, that, that because, uh, because he said that God... He said that God never made man or, or the son of man lower than angels. And he taught that because he didn't see Psalm 8 as, as a messianic psalm in any way. He, he wanted to see Psalm 8 as having reference to all of us, to humankind corporately and the, and the son of man being all of us and, and not really talking about the title that Jesus used for himself. I, 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 listen, how did Jesus... Uh, what's the most common, anybody know what the most common title Jesus used to refer to himself? Son of man. That's right. That's exactly right. And this, this teacher actually went to the original Hebrew, which is what we sometimes preachers do when we try to make a point that's not very obvious and we try to retreat to that. But he went to the original Hebrew and he tried to prove that Psalm 8 didn't really mean a little lower than the angels, even though that's what it says. Uh, it couldn't really mean that because he said the translation was, was wrong. And he did that because this teacher had a very exalted view of the place of man in, in creation. Therefore, he said that man is never lower than the angels. But you know what happened? He missed the, the whole reference to this in the book of Hebrews. He missed what, what the writer of Hebrews was saying because the book of Hebrews clearly reveals that it was the divine plan of God that took Jesus by whom the heavens were spoken into existence and made him a little lower than the angels. The one who was better than the angels became lower than the angels so that he might suffer death and rejection for our sins and then and only then he might again be raised up above the angels and crowned with glory and honor. Now, now, you know, we, we, we want to, and it's rightfully so, we want to be careful not to impose uh, messianic implication on a psalm when it's not there. But, but also, if we miss it when it is there, we may very well uh, stray into heresy. Therefore, here we see in Psalm 2, the plot to murder Jesus testified to in Acts chapter 4. We see in Psalm 16, the resurrection of Jesus testified to in Acts chapter 2. In Psalm 8, we see the incarnation of Jesus testified 
2 in Hebrews chapter 2. We didn't go over Psalm 41, but in Psalm 41, we see the betrayal of Jesus testified to in John chapter 13. In Psalm 45, six and, verses 6 and 7, and Psalm 102, 25 through 27, we see in those, we see the eternal kingdom of Jesus testified to in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. And in Psalm 22, we see the details of the cross. And let me just give you one little precious little nugget that I think maybe you'll find interesting too because in Psalm 69, uh, we find a very obscure verse uh, which, of which many people are not even aware. Verse 20 says, Insults have broken my heart and I am sick and I looked for some to take pity but there was none and for comforters but I found none. They also gave me poison for my food and in my thirst they gave me what? Vinegar to drink. In John chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, I thirst! And they, and they put up to, uh, to his mouth on a sponge a vinegar to, to drink that would numb the pain. Listen, do you think that for one minute those Roman soldiers or the temple guards that may have been there said to themselves, oh, you know, this would be a Jim Dandy moment to, to verify Psalm 69. No, no, that's not what happened. Listen, what I'm trying to get across, and I'm, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm teaching it very well because it's a thing I can feel, but it's much harder to articulate. But there, there, is, a, uh, there is a great swirling mystery of prophecy. Uh, you, you know, we sometimes think that the prophets, you know, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, men like that, you know, we think that they just saw things so clearly. But we need to understand that, that these are men who in prayer are struggling to understand things that are going on inside of them. And, and things that in many cases were just absolutely wild. I mean, th- think about Ezekiel seeing the psychedelic visions that he saw. Don't you think that there were moments when after it passed and his mind cleared that he fell on the, on the floor and, and cried out to God and said, Oh God, what is this? What can this possibly mean? You know, we, we know that Jeremiah got angry with God over the prophetic things that he saw. He, he sulked with God. He said, you showed me things and then you didn't do it. He, he, said, he said, I don't like this job of prophet. He, he didn't. Jeremiah was sullen with God at times. David, I think that David is the most underestimated of all the prophets in the Old Testament. David sitting alone with his, with his old battered guitar that's been through five military campaigns, the weight of the kingdom, you know, the, the responsibilities, the administrative responsibilities weighing upon his shoulders, and he grabs a few moments by himself while the foreign dignitaries are waiting for him and their advisors and counselors. And my lands, I mean, you talk about pressure. The, the man had hundreds of wives. You talk about pressure. And he goes into a lonely room, and takes his old guitar and says, Oh God, I need you. I, I just need you. Begins singing maybe one of his other psalms, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, O oh God. He takes his guitar and he begins to sing and play and he begins to sing in the spirit. Now, now listen, in the Pentecostal world, we, we think that sometimes this, we have this idea that singing in the spirit means singing in, in tongues. Now, now, it may mean that, but, it, but it's, like, it's like the difference between rectangles and squares because all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares, right? And, and so it, 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 in the same way, if, if it's real and if it's God, all singing in tongues is in the spirit, but not all singing in the spirit is in tongues. Does that make sense? So singing in the spirit 
David finds a, a revelation from God and he begins to sing, What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You, met, you made him through whom life was spoken into existence. The, the pre-existent, co-eternal word of God. You made him lower than the angels and then you crowned him with glory and honor. And I think at that moment, David reached over and turned off the, the, the tape recorder in the room and, and, he, and he sat back and he put his guitar down and he said, I have no idea what that song is about. I really do. We see these things. See, we see them in retrospect. We see them from the vantage point of of understanding uh, Christian doctrine. And we see these things from uh, having understanding of the Scripture as it's been interpreted throughout the New Testament. But David, he's standing there on the precipice of prophecy. He doesn't see it all as clearly as we do. Listen, I, I want to zero in on Psalm 110 for the rest of our time. But now you, you probably know this. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But let me just tell you, there are more quotations from Psalm 110 in the New Testament than any other single chapter in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament more often than any other single chapter in all of the Old Testament. And I think when we read Psalm 110, I I think it needs to be uh, read at a blur, so to speak. Try to read the psalm in the spirit in which David wrote it and just sort of let it swirl around you. Let it it penetrate you. And I think you'll begin to see these themes. You'll see the deity of Christ, not only the deity of Christ, but the priesthood of Christ, the the body of Christ, the return of Christ, the the kingdom of Christ. Uh, But look at verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I think this is is probably one of the most astonishing moments in all of David's life. I want you to get this. David is, is in one of those moments. And I, I, don't, I don't know what to call it. I'm, I'm telling you it's real, but I just don't even have the vocabulary, vocabulary for it. It's, the closest thing to it that I see in the New Testament is Peter on the rooftop in the city of Joppa. And it was there, the Bible says, that, that, that Peter fell into a trance. And you'll remember, it was in that moment that he saw, do you remember when he saw the vision of the sheet Lowered down from the sky. Everybody remember that? And, and it, it, it was a sheet full of ham sandwiches. See, it was a sheet full of ham sandwiches lowered down from the sky. And God says, arise, Peter, and eat. Get a ham sandwich, he says. And, well, that's kind of what he said. You can read it yourself. But uh, Peter says, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. And then God says, don't call anything unclean that I have cleansed. So, so Peter is in one of these moments where, where he is seeing this revelation prophecy. But I want you to realize that in that moment, he cannot really understand its meaning. He doesn't understand what the point of this whole thing is because from, he, he can't see it from where he's standing because it, it has implication in the future. He does not fully understand this, this experience, this vision of the sheet uh, uh, he doesn't understand it fully until he gets to Cornelius's house in Caesarea Philippi. And then when God begins to move among the Gentiles, all of a sudden in his mind, the light bulb comes on and he looks uh, back at the rooftop experience in, in Joppa and he says, oh, ham sandwiches, Gentiles. I get it now. Don't call anything or anyone unclean that I have cleansed. You see? See, this is what's going on here. So now David, in Psalm 110, he's in one of these divine moments. And he's singing in the spirit. And he says, I heard communication going on inside the Godhead. Does this blow anybody else's mind besides mine? The only thing like it in the Old Testament is in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, to whom is he speaking? The angels? No. No, we know that because you're not made in the image of angels. It's communication 
inside the Godhead. And then later he gave Moses a revelation of that communication. And God said in himself, by himself, by his word and through his spirit, let us make man in our image. So David is alone somewhere in some lonely room in his palace singing and playing the guitar when suddenly the Holy Spirit comes on him and he says, I heard God say to my Lord, I heard God say to his Christ. You know, in some way or another, the, the inference here, the, the, the entire Old and New Testament is in Psalm 110, verse 1. The, the crucifixion, the commission, the, the unity of the Godhead, the triune God, the extension of God's kingdom into the world, the burial, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the priesthood of Jesus and his eternal coming again. David said, I heard God speak to my Lord, the Christ of Israel, and he said, come now, sit at my right hand in the Holy of Holies, where I will give you the right to intercede for your people before me until I make the rulers of all nations your footstool and establish your kingdom forever. It's the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in one place. It's the most, one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture to me. And in it we see Jesus, we see his current position as our Lord at the right hand of God. Therefore, we see our position in him. We are written on the palm of his hand. We are stamped on, on the miter of his head. We are born into the presence of all, Almighty God and we are justified. We, we see in, in this verse, we see in him the ultimate victory of his kingdom. He says, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Not if I make your enemies your footstool, not maybe I'll make your enemies your footstool, but he says, you sit here until I do this, until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, some people consider uh, God slack concerning his promises, but with God, a, a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. He will make his enemies his footstool. And it, we also see the extension through, the, through spiritual Israel. Verse 2. The Lord shall send your mighty scepter out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, I believe that this verse is a word of prophecy to spiritual Israel, the church. And one, one of the great hymns of the church is called, O Zion Haste. It's, it's, it's a hymn of the church and it's a hymn to the church. It says, the first couple of lines says, O Zion, haste thy mission high fulfilling to tell all the world that God is light. I believe that out of Zion will come the scepter because in us, the world sees the authority of Jesus Christ. All of creation is standing on tiptoe waiting to see the children of God come into their own. In us and through us, Jesus manifests his victory. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now I want to close with this. I, there's so much more I'd like to say about Psalm 110, but we need to bring this to a conclusion. This verse, this is a very fascinating, remarkable scripture because what's happening here, David is making reference to Jesus, the Messiah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ahead of him by using the name of the prince, the prophet, the king of Salem, who came out to meet Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before him and to him, whom, listen, to whom nobody else in the entire Old Testament ever makes reference. Melchizedek. He came out to meet Abraham after defeating the ten kings of Amraphel. And Abraham tithed to the king of Salem, which literally means king of peace because uh, Salem or Shalom is the peace. And you, you remember the passage, it says that Melchizedek came out to Abraham. Do you remember what he had with him when he came out to Abraham? Anybody remember? Genesis fourteen eighteen. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. Bread and wine. Now look at this. Abraham 
returns from a self, selfless, sacrificial journey of love to rescue his nephew Lot out of obedience to God. And as he returns, the king of Salem, or Shalom, which means peace, the king of peace, Melchizedek, comes out to him with bread and wine, and thousands of years before the birth of Jesus, Melchizedek serves communion to Abraham. That's incredible. And nobody, nobody in the entire Old Testament, not one prophet, not one priest, not one king, not one preacher, nobody ever makes reference to it again until David does in this passage, singing in the glory of the Spirit of God in a prophetic utterance says he will make the Messiah to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I can't help but think that David must have sung that and put his guitar down and then said, what is the order of Melchizedek? The, the order of Aaron, I know. The, the order of Levi, I know. But what is this? I think that's a question for us. What is the order of Melchizedek? Now, remember, we are Westerners. Therefore, we think like Greeks. And to a Greek, what is most important is what I say. It's what I tell you. But remember, ancient Jews in particular, they were not Greek. Uh, they, they were, they're not Western in their mindset. They are Asian in thought. And to the ancient Jew, what was said was not always what was most important. To the ancient Jew, what was most important was often what was not said. See, now listen, every place in the Bible where, where somebody, where anybody important is mentioned, they tell about his birth, they tell about his lineage, they tell about the means and the manner and the time of his death. Melchizedek, the Bible never tells us where Melchizedek was born. It never tells us who his parents were. It never tells us where he came from. He just appears a mystery figure and he serves communion to Abraham and then disappears again. Therefore, to the ancient Jew, what does this mean? Well, because his beginnings aren't mentioned, he had none to the Jew. To the ancient Jew, because his death wasn't mentioned, he had none. Therefore, to the ancient Jew, Melchizedek re represented that which was without beginning and without ending. He, he's a, he was a mystery figure. He, he haunted the, the back pages of the Old Testament until he is summoned forth in the spirit of prophecy by King David to say he is our communion Lord. He is our priesthood. You know, the order of Aaron they, they, they will fall into to apostasy. The order of Aaron can take a bribe or die or, or they can fall into corruption or they can be persecuted. They can be slaughtered. They can be brought to an end. However, the order of Melchizedek, he has no beginning and it has no ending. So it cannot be corrupted. It cannot be bribed. It cannot be killed and it cannot end. The order of Melchizedek then is perfect. Therefore, our high priest Jesus is like Melchizedek without beginning, without ending, perfect, unbribable, untouchable, unsearchable. And yet look what David is showing us. He's made a little lower than the angels. He becomes like Melchizedek. What? What do you mean? Well, was Melchizedek a ghost? No. He was flesh and blood. He he and Abraham shared communion together. They ate and drank together. Furthermore, we know that Melchizedek taught Abraham. We know that Melchizedek told him what to do. And I'm not going to give you a big long thing about it, but, but listen to this. It says in the verse right before the, the passage about Melchizedek and Abraham in Genesis 14, it says this in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, speaking of Abraham. And then it drops that, that narrative doesn't say anything about what's going on with the king of Sodom. And it goes on and, and, and begins, and then it tells the whole story of Abraham and Melchizedek. And then when Melchizedek goes back into Salem, it says that the king of Sodom says to Abraham, after all of this, he says, give me the people 
and you can have everything else. You can have all the riches, everything else. Just leave the people. Let me maintain rulership over them. And Abraham says, no, because I have lifted my hand to the sovereign God. I have sworn to Elohim. I will not allow you to profit me in any way. Now, now when did that happen? I believe that we're free to infer from this passage that Melchizedek served him bread and wine and said, look, Abraham, you see this pagan king that's on his way out here to, to greet us? He's walk, riding out toward us. He's going to offer you the things of the world. He said, commune with God in the secret place. Because if that man prospers you, God cannot. However, if God prospers you, he cannot hurt you. And I believe that Abraham heard that and said, by the living God, I will do as you say. You know, the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was in every sense tempted like we are, yet without sin. He understands your weaknesses, your fears, your, your frailties, your, your doubts, your sins. He, he understands your problems and your family issues and your struggles and your financial issues. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says, I have bread and wine, and if anybody will open the door, I will come in and I will sup with him and he with me. He said, and he says, and we'll commune and I'll teach you how to live and I'll show you how to deal with the king of Sodom because I sit at the right hand of God. I'm a priest without beginning and without end. Therefore, in me, you are justified before God. What manner of man was David? He was a great man. A great man of God, a man after God's own heart, Scripture says. And yet David is dead, and we know where his tomb is. But Jesus is alive at the right hand of the Father. And he is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want you to bow your head. I want to pray for you. Lord, As we come to you, you are our priest and we praise you. You are our resurrection from from the dead. You are the Lord of, of the church. You are our Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, and we worship you. You you were made a little lower than the angels, and and yet you are crowned with glory and with honor. We worship you because you are our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You're the Lamb of God, and you're the Rose of Sharon. You're, you're my rock, you're my sword, you're my shield, you're my salvation. And now, Lord Jesus, intercede for us at the right hand of the Father until that time when your enemies have become your footstool. And we pray, Lord, that your authority may be revealed in us and by your power make us willing to serve you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.